there will remain secure long after time's celestial foot stomps on the cigarette butt of humanity. For good. Find out more. Join us every Friday morning from midnight until 1am on The Equivalent. What's worse than being left behind? Leaving nothing behind at all. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. I'm so pleased to have Anne Curzan here in the studio. Anne, welcome. Oh, thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's great. Well, it's great to have you here. We've got Stephanie in the engineering booth and a little Jackson Fives to start off the show. And on the table, we have... um, And you have a course with the great courses um, out, The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins, um, and also uh, the DVD set. So book, DVD set of a complete course Uh and this intriguing, The Secret Life of Words. Um, I'm glad you think it's intriguing. (laughs) That's what what we were going for. You, You were saying this was not the original title of the the great course. It wasn't. So the course was a year in development. And when I signed a contract to do the course, the working title was The Joy of Words. And I worked with that for almost a year. And as we were moving toward production, I just thought, I can't, I just can't do that title. I have trouble saying it with a straight face. (laughs) And so I went to them and I said, can we please, please, please change the title? And we, so I proposed The Secret Life of Words, and they did some polling to see if that would sound intriguing to people and got a really good response. So I was delighted that we could use that title instead. It's surprising to me that they did polling, Anne, only because you're someone who you live and breathe words and thinking about words, and you're on the, the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary. I, I mean, it's not, you wouldn't have taken any of the words lightly, and you're actually making choices for the culture in some ways about words, and yet yet they still moved to the panel. Um, They do. Well, because... (laughs) Or to the the polling, rather. Yeah. So the teaching (laughs) company, they've been doing this for a long time, and they have, in some ways, a much better sense of what will appeal to their audience in terms of what will grab them, what will be the thing that they think, I might want to listen to that. And so I was absolutely willing to trust them, because for me... I was so excited by this chance to get information out about how words work and how they change over time that anything that would convince people to buy this and listen, I was completely willing to trust their instincts about what would work. So it could have been joy, although that might have been misrepresentative when you think about some of the lectures, because it's not always joy. It's not. <laughs> it's not. Some of it, some of the material in there is hard. I mean, I remember putting together the lecture on the language of war and trying to think about even how do you do this? This is some of these words are so painful and so loaded that that, that is far from 
joy. I mean, some of it is there's some war slang that is funny and fun, but then there's also a lot of slang that is about violence and things like that. So to think about how I wanted to navigate that. So this, the secret life of words, English words and their origins, that, that definitely feels that it could, it could, it covers the, the mysteries and the seriousness and the playfulness. Well, and that's, that's just, I'm glad it's just what we, what I was hoping for. So, you know, I study the history of the English language, which means that I get to cover this huge span. People will say, do you specialize in one particular period? And I say, the great thing about saying you're a historian of the language is that you can move around in the history of the language. So I've done work on old and middle English, but I do work on changes happening in contemporary English as well. So, so, and the course is covering everything from Beowulf and the beginnings of English through the internet and English, everything in between those. So it does cover, it covers an enormous amount of territory. It's 36 lectures. So people, you know, you're spending a good 18 hours with me if you do this, which is a lot of time. It's, I get some emails now from people who've watched the course or listened to it. So of course, I don't know these people. They're an email address to me. And you can tell there's something about the tone of the email that they feel like they know me because they have spent 18 hours with me. That's a significant amount of time. It is. So they've in some ways have gotten to know me and gotten to know because in some of the lectures I'll talk about where I grew up or my own language or my own teaching. So in the process of learning about the language, they're getting to know me a little bit too. And did you realize that would be part of it, Anne? Or was that just a natural part of also how you teach so or how you I don't in some ways I think I was hoping people would be engaged enough to email me and it's lovely that that people who've watched or listened take the time and have the motivation to email me and often they share tidbits of their own language experience or they ask a question Mm -hmm. I actually got a, a wonderful one the other day and that there's a dialect, uh, lecture on American dialects, and I talk about some of the things for which there are multiple words across the United States, different ways of talking about them. And one of the words I talk about is, what do you call that clump of dust under furniture or the bed, something like that. And there's a resource called the Dictionary of American Regional English, which for everybody out there who loves words, you really want to look at this dictionary because it is just a treasure trove of regional expressions. The Dictionary of American Regional English has 170 words for these clumps of dust. And I think many of us know them as dust bunnies. That's what I call them. You people call them dust kittens. Uh, Fooskies, apparently, is a word for these, and gollywogs. So I get an email from someone who is talking to me about the course, and then he said, when I was in the Army, and he said, now, I don't want to offend you or anything, but what we called them was ghost turds. (laughs) And I was so delighted that he had written me to share that because that is a wonderful expression for those little clumps of dust. And now you can add that into the future lectures. Into future lectures. (laughs) Because I forget actually which phrase it is, but it was not the first time that turd's been used in a phrase. It was part of the lecture somewhere. And I can't, but because I remember thinking, Anne is saying a lot. It has to say a, a, a wide variety of words. And, and I do. And so if you look at the table of contents, there is a whole lecture on taboo language. 
the folks at the teaching company and I spent a lot of time working on and thinking about how to do that lecture. We all felt strongly that there should be a lecture on taboo words. It's an important part of the language. It's one of the most powerful parts of the language. These are the words that can do the most damage in some ways. They also can be incredibly funny. So we were, but we also don't want to offend our listeners. We were thinking about what if somebody's using this to homeschool their child, right? I don't want to suddenly have this lecture that is offending little Johnny's favorite lecture, right? So if you listen to that lecture, actually, I go through pretty much the whole thing and barely say a taboo word. I say more taboo words in other lectures than I say in that lecture, because in some ways, what what we decided was. Actually saying the words is one of the least interesting things about them. Mm-hmm. That what's more interesting about them is how did they get this power? How do we navigate that? What parts of the lexicon, you know, words for sex, particular body parts, death, these are areas of taboo in a lot of cultures. Mm-hmm. That's in some ways more interesting than dropping an F-bomb or something. Right, right. And this, the, the context of mm-hmm. when it's happening. And I, I thought it was so interesting in this one, though, when you did say that it can create it can create distance, but then it can also create intimacy. And so there are many moments like this in this lecture series and where you're think it's you, you 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 caused me to think rethink things and think about, oh, right, I recognize that, but had never articulated it or so. I'm I'm glad. It's just what I hope. One of the wonderful things about teaching language-related topics is that I'm teaching about something that people have experience with every day, every hour of every day. And so what I'm doing is saying, here's another way to look at this thing that you actually know so much about, and I'm offering you a new perspective on that, be that historical or just noticing something, for example, about how taboo words can create solidarity. I mentioned that in a grad class last winter, and the graduate students in the class said, we know because the, they were talking about how the first semester of graduate school, they a lot of them were feeling like they needed to be really proper in their language, and they weren't cursing, they weren't using taboo words, and they, they many of them said, you know, and then there's this moment as you get more comfortable where we crossed the cursing line, and suddenly they felt more at home and more comfortable because they could just loosen up a little bit as part of this community. And for many of them, that meant being able to use a taboo word sometimes because it can be a way, it can be a way to signal to someone too, I'm comfortable enough with you that I will use this word that I might not use in other contexts. And then I suppose you can read the signal that what happens back to know if that person is as comfortable right. with you or not. Exactly. Th- this idea of performing identities, that seems to 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 fit here mm-hmm. as well it with is. language. And a way of thinking about language is just, I mean, obviously it's our way of um, signaling who we are or it's part of who we are. But it's interesting to think of it as performing. Yeah. So I think... It's really important for all of us to remember that language is part of who we are, and it's an important part of who we are. So we it's one of the ways we signal our identity to other people, and it's one of the ways that we size each other up is, you know, how does that person look? How do they talk? And we learn a lot from how somebody talks. Now, 
the flip side of that is we can also make some pretty unfair judgments about people based on how they talk. I was actually talking with students about that in class today around the judgments that people will for example, somebody who speaks a non-standard dialect, that people will notice not only do they speak a non-standard dialect, but they may start to judge things like education level or intelligence or whether they like them or things like that. And that's where we need to be very, very careful. Um, there are linguists who argue that people will discriminate against people based on their language in ways that they would never discriminate against them based on other characteristics. So that's that kind of brings it to the serious level, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> and thinking of the power of words. Right. And that this and and so that for me was one of the reasons that I was very interested in doing this course because there's lots language is fun and it's fascinating. It's also powerful and really socially important. So to have this chance to talk with people about how language changes and also how it varies from place to place, from community to community, and to reinforce for people that, all, that first of all, change is okay. Living languages change because a lot of people feel concerned about that and worried that the language is somehow getting worse over time. So I want to make people feel better that language is not getting worse, that young people are not ruining the language. I'm really not worried about that at all. Also to say that different varieties of English are all rule governed in the way linguists would talk about that, which is they all have systematic patterns, are fully rule governed. They may not follow standard English rules, but they're all entirely rule governed. And it's interesting because we might not even be consciously aware of the rules that we're following. And yet when you start talking about certain types of language or texting, for example, and maybe we can talk about that a little more later. Sure. Uh, you start realizing there are these rules or these s systematic approaches to it. There are. And the, the, the amount of knowledge that each of us brings to the table about our native language is enormous. And we've learned a lot of that before we could even talk. So child language acquisition is fascinating. Again, it's one of the things I love about teaching this is that what I'm doing, and I remind students of this, I say, you in some ways already know all these rules. It's just that you know them intuitively. And I'm asking you to bring that knowledge at, to a more explicit level where you have terminology to talk about how do you create these different tenses and how do you create these noun phrases. You know how to do this. You do it every day, but you've never had to describe all that intricate linguistic knowledge that you already possess. So you too can learn about this by getting the great course here, The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. Um, today on our program, Ann Kurzan is here. We're going to take a short break. And we'll be right back.
If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel um, today in the studio. Ann Kurzan is here. Um, and we just had a little um, flashback there to the 80s with Word Up. Um, you might hear that there's some um, thematic choice happening behind the, the songs. <laughs> and I'll blame Stephanie and I today, right? Stephanie, and and let us make the word choices. I did. So. <laughs> Although you did enjoy this one, right? I like, did. I'm, oh, <laughs> you have made some great music choices here. Um, and before we go any further... Um, we're today on the table. We have the secret life of words, English words and their origins, um, out with the great courses. And I'll say a quick thank you to to Kate Rosenberger for for sending um, the, both the the DVD course and and the book along to me. It's it's been an eye opener. And here's here's the um, even though I've spoken language English and language since since the get go. It's so amazing what you. What you um, what you have here in this lecture series, oh, and, and what you're sharing, um, and I love that you said that part of your reason for wanting to do this is this mission, so that people can know that language is changing and it's always been changing. It's not just something that's happening now or for the worse. Or um, well, that's exactly right. And you know, if you're a historian of the language, the way I am, and I've I'm studying 1,500 years worth of change in the language. It makes you feel much better about the changes that you're watching all around you because you think this is part of a much bigger pattern. What's fascinating is that in retrospect, people look at language change and they think it's really cool. They say, you know, the word nice used to mean silly. That's amazing. <laughs> or decimate, which used to mean kill one in every 10 and now means to destroy, right? To obliterate probably to kill nine out of 10 if you're going to do that. So, and people think, oh, that's so interesting. That etymology is fascinating. But then they look at things happening today and they say, these people using literally to mean figuratively are wrong and that's terrible. Well, 100 or 200 years from now, that will also be an interesting fact in the history of English, which isn't to say, then people will say, oh, Anne, you're just saying everybody should write however they want and there are no rules do people, and it doesn't matter. People do not say that to you. Oh, do yes, they, they do. They don't, then oh, they yes, don't they do. know you then, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things. It's, it's something that linguists are trying to figure out how to address, address because as soon as we say we need to think about how language changes all the time and that's natural and that language variation, dialects are systematic, they're all legitimate, they're all rule governed people will think we're saying there's no need for standard English, right? And that's actually not what we're saying. That standard English is a really valuable dialect. It's a shared means of communication, something that's valuable for people to have control over. So in terms of the education system, helping students master standard English, spoken, written, often particularly written is what people are focused on, is a valuable thing to do. What I worry about is when the standard is being taught at the expense of all the other dialects that people may bring to the table. The, my argument is you can teach standard English as additive, as something, another dialect that people control that's part of their repertoire. And the fact is, the more dialects you control and the more languages you control, the more versatile a speaker 
you are. That you can shift your register. That's you can exactly right. Use the form that you need. Right. And you can shift between dialects and be an insider in different communities. And there are situations in which standard English is not the best choice. And so to control more varieties just gives you more options as a speaker. I think one example that stands out to me um, that was so interesting was the simple word ask, ax, mm -hmm. and then axe, ax. Like, like going back in, could you talk a little bit about that, Anne? Because that happens early on in the lecture series. It is. Yeah, I, I absolutely can. So the what you're pointing to is the variation between ask and ax, as in ask a question or ax a question. In contemporary American English, the form ax is a stigmatized pronunciation. What people don't often realize is that it has a long history in English. In fact, it has a longer history in English than ask. That in Old English, we have oxion, where the K comes before the S, and then we get oskion. So you get the two sounds switching places. Linguists call this process metathesis, where two sounds switch places. But people think it's that ask became ax, but actually ax became ask, People also don't realize we have examples of axe in Chaucer, in the Wife of Bath Tale. You have, it's spelled A-X-E. And the form axe was a high literary form through the 16th century and then was replaced by ask as the standard form. I find that example helpful for just showing people that the attitudes we have and the stigmas we have around particular pronunciations or grammatical features are socially constructed. That it's not that there's anything linguistically wrong with acts. It's that people have, that's a stigma that has been attached to it, but in its earlier history, it was actually the high literary form. And it's, it's interesting because it's in the same section when you're also talking about how our mouths are forming words and why certain letters then become, try, like shift places mm -hmm. or drop out completely or then are added like empty. Like there didn't used to be a, a P, P in empty. Now, yes. <laughs> Just the same way that I am putting a P into hamster because I tend to say hamster that, that it's about putting an M next to that, the S and you'll get the, the P gets inserted. So there are there, there are patterns about how we pronounce words. And one of them is these times when we swap sounds. Other examples of that are um, thrid turned into third. And thrid, of course, makes more sense because three thrid, it, you can see the connection there, but that became third. There's one happening, there, there are a couple happening right now. If you go to the drugstore, most people go and get a prescription and you will notice that I say prescription, although if you look at the spelling, it's clearly P-R-E, as in prescription. The one that I do is also involves that K-S. But for me, it so the word is that little star thing that is, I believe, shift eight on a keyboard that people say, well, how often do you have to say that word? And I said, well, in fact, if you teach Indo-European, you have to say that word a lot. It is technically asterisk. But you'll notice that I have to slow down to say it that way because that is not my pronunciation. My pronunciation is asterisk, and I've put the K before the S. And I know I'm not alone on that. There are some listeners who are saying I say asterisk, too. Yes, I'm raising my hand here as well. <laughs> um, I, I love how there's this also um, in this series, 
and you even though the setting that people are watching is is maybe a very formal setting in some ways and you don't get a sense in the DVDs that there's students there or that you have maybe a an audience present you definitely you are speaking into the camera you're you're lots of eye contact for the the listener um but i love how you also bring in moments stories from your classroom your other classes and 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 giving examples where you from your life where you say like like hamster and um and then even saying once there was a PowerPoint with a particular line on it, and you could see this word that was coming up that you realized maybe you had read to yourself <laughs> quietly more often than you had <laughs> said it out loud. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about using like using these moments and uh, how it's wor- maybe the story and then how it's working in the the lecture series? Oh, sure. And so I do tell I tell a lot of stories about teaching and what I've learned from students, because in fact, I have learned an enormous amount from students that students teach me about how the language is changing. They've taught me an enormous amount about what is happening with the internet and texting. So I want to cite them because so much of what I know about contemporary English and slang comes from students. So I love to be able to bring them in and give them credit for all the things that they've taught me over the years. And then I also feel like it's important that, you know, I get positioned as a as a language expert and to be clear with people that this doesn't mean that I don't make, you know, have my own issues with language, be that I have pet peeves, right? I mean, there's no, I think everyone has pet peeves, but I recognize that my pet peeves are my own baggage and I try not to impose them on other people that I sort of, that I realize, okay, I may not like that interface is being used as a verb, right. which, which I don't, it's not my favorite verb. Does that mean it's a terrible verb? No, it just means that somehow aesthetically it's not pleasing to me. And I just, and I try to just own that. I had one wh- which I was actually imposing on, on um, both students and as a copy editor, which was, that I have for a long time had it in my head that on the other hand should not be used unless you have on the one hand. And I have held on to this for quite a long time that you should not use on the other hand to mean in contrast, it needs to be on the one hand on the other hand. So actually this semester, I students have been writing about, have been writing essays about a point of usage or a grammatical rule and looking at its history and it's how it compares to actual usage. So I put on the table, if anybody wants to look into, on the other hand, that would be great because you can tell me whether there's any, whether I have any justification for imposing this on other people, which I've been doing for years. I just got the essays in and this student in, shows me that I have no, I, I really don't have any grounding for this. So I'm going to have to change my practice, which is great, which is great. It's just what should happen is that she's gone in and she's looked at usage guides. And I'm not quite sure where I came up with this prescription that I have been carrying around that you cannot do this. But there's not a lot of justification. And when you look at edited prose, a whole lot of people are using on the other hand without on the one hand. So I'm changing my ways, changing my ways. And you really are. I mean, that might be hard. it, It sounds like it even might. It might take, it's going to be hard because you also sit on a, a usage panel, as we mentioned before, um, uh, for the American Heritage Dictionary. Dictionary. So c- couldn't this be one of those things where you sort of go rogue on and you sort of <laughs> decide that it's going to be something that you get out there and you uh, try to 
I don't know, apostolatize or something. <laughs> yeah, it's a great it's a great question. So the the all of us carry around really, really strong beliefs about language. And changing those can be work. On the American Heritage Usage Panel, and we can talk more about this, um, but I, in some ways I see my role as trying to track actual usage. And my attitude is if a whole lot of people are doing something, then I need to listen to that. Because whether or not I like it, if, there, if it looks like it's becoming majority usage, then my job is to legitimize that because that's how language change works. Sort of like that example of there, the T-H-E-I-R, and his or her. Yes. Maybe. Oh, and we should talk about that because that gets into an issue of usage versus prescription, what we're told we should and should not do with that. Okay, we'll take a short break and maybe we'll come back and start with that. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Ann Kurzan is here. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Ann Kurzan is here on WCBN FM. Ann Arbor, The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins, Out with the Great Courses. Um, so you too can get this course and spend 18 hours <laughs> with Ann and The Secret Life of Words. Um, and it will make you very self-conscious about, it might, I shouldn't right. say it will, but it, it'll make you think about things differently. All right. I just, I sometimes say to people, you know, welcome to my head, right? I mean, I walk around the world noticing the way people talk, but just so people don't worry about talking to me because people are like, well, then I'm not going to talk to you if you're noticing everything I say. The good news is that to me, it's all interesting. It's all about what's happening to English today. And so I'm not judging people. I'm actually fascinated by what's happening with the language. So when I'm, I hear lots of people now saying, the thing is, is the fact is, is, which now all of you will notice because I have now put it in your brain. So you'll notice it too. And 
And I'm fascinated by that. So what I ended up doing was doing research on it and writing an article trying to figure out how are people creating these constructions with a double is. And will it last or could it have lasting? Right now, it's looking pretty well entrenched and you hear it. Our listeners can now go out and hear it and they'll hear it all around them. I hear my colleagues do it. Uh, President Barack Obama uses that double is quite a bit. That what seems to be happening is that the the first part of that, the point is, the fact is, has become a kind of fossilized expression. It's functioning as a unit. And as a unit, when you think about what is the fact is or the point is mean, it really means pay attention to what I'm about to say. Right? It's a focusing expression. It says, I'm about to say something that's worth your time of paying attention to. So, so that has become a phrase in the beginning, functioning as a subject. So you say the point is... That's the subject. Then you need a verb. Is. The point is, is. And a lot of people said, oh, it's a disfluency. But when you listen to people say it, it's not a disfluency. It is completely fluent. It's not a mistake. They're not self-correcting or repeating. It's part of their grammar. With disfluency, is that, that does sound like a, when a, Isn't like that a, a great harsh, word. It's a great word, but it also feels like a, a harsh label as well. And so when you're saying there's a disfluency. So, so a disfluency for linguists, a disfluency is, is an actual speech error when you, when, in some ways you can think of it as where your brain gets ahead of your mouth and you actually say something and have to repair it. So we mean that as where you start and stop and you have something that's disfluent. So when people first saw that is, is, they thought that people were saying the point is, is that they were either thinking or they were self-correcting. But when you hear it, people, it's not a disfluency. It's not a self-correction. It actually appears to be part of this, folks. It's part of the grammar. Well, and you've completely explained it as the system of and the why behind it, how it, it might be emerging in that way. Or it's, well, I hope I'm, so. I feel convinced. I, I, felt, yeah. I hope so. We'll see if my colleagues are convinced by this. <laughs> by this article. Well, I can also remember you were when uh, I had to take before I was uh, a GSI here at Michigan, we all did the the two day training. Uh And, and, and I remember you very clearly saying, um, giving an example about um, how language is changing and we can't be afraid of that. And we shouldn't be, um, you know, we should be helping students to learn the, the correct academic register, et cetera. But for example, the the there and he and she and it's OK, especially students should be able to write write that in their papers as long as it's intentional and they understand what the choices they're making. Mm-hmm. So that to me in that moment, I remember was a bit revolutionary. And I thought, oh, so as long as, you know, the intentionality is there. Yeah. So, and not everyone agrees with me on this. Not everyone sees this as a revelation. Some people hear me say this and just think I'm flat out wrong. But so, so this issue here is the singular generic pronoun. Some folks say English doesn't have a singular generic pronoun. So it's a situation like every should, every teacher should learn his or her students' names, his students' names, her students' names, or their students' names. Right. So usage guides will tell us to use his or her usage guides until the 1970s told us to use his and second wave feminism challenged that and said, that's not generic, which I think for most of us, it's not generic that if you hear every teacher should learn his students names, it sounds more male than generic. 
So the prescription has often been use his or her or rewrite the entire sentence so that it's plural and you can avoid the entire issue. So teachers should learn their students' names. So that's written prescription. If you track the way we speak, we tend not to use his or her. What we use is singular they. To which people will say to me sometimes, but they cannot be singular. And my response is, but it is, which they don't seem to like that answer. But if you listen, we use it as a singular that I can say, I was talking to my neighbor and they told me that blah, blah, blah. I was talking to my neighbor, one person, and they said, and for whatever reason, my neighbor's gender is not relevant right now. I don't want to tell you whatever it is. So in actual usage, in what linguists would call descriptive grammar, describing what we actually do, they is singular, and it's been singular for over 500 years. Shakespeare uses singular they, Jane Austen uses singular they. We, a whole lot of us, most of us, studies show use singular they every day in our spoken language. So that raises the question of, so why can't I write it down? Why is it wrong when I write it down? And this is where if we think about my role in the usage panel that I feel like one of my jobs there is to say, is this a place where we should, there should be a gatekeeper saying you can't write that down? Or is this a place to say, there's no reason you can't write that down? So I tell students that they can use it in their writing, but I warn them that they will run into faculty who think it's wrong. So to do that, I say footnote the first time you use it. And in the footnote, explain, I am using singular they because it's the most common generic pronoun in speech. And I also tell them that they can write at the end of the footnote, if you have any questions, please contact Professor Ann Curzan, <laughs> which faculty from across the university have actually done and said, I got this footnote. Um, and, I, and I love that because then I can actually have a conversation with that faculty member about, about the issue. The other argument people will sometimes make is they'll say, but they is ambiguous in that construction. My response to that is most of the time it's actually not ambiguous, right? I was talking to my neighbor and they said every teacher should learn their students' names. Those are not ambiguous constructions. There are constructions where they will be ambiguous. There are also constructions where he or she can be ambiguous. And I say with ambiguous sentences, rewrite them. And you rewrite them for a singular they as you would for an ambiguous he or an ambiguous she. So. So on these usage panels, you, you bring it to a really interesting point when you're, are you meeting together and talking things over so that you can actually argue it out a little bit? Sort of, it reminds me, I think, of your, the Michigan radio um, show title, and uh, Oh, that's what they say? Yeah. Or I just, I don't know. That's yeah. what they say. Yeah. It seems like those are fighting words in some, way, <laughs> some ways. Yeah. And humorous and sort of, yeah. Right. And also potentially really descriptive which is, that's what they say. That's what people say. And we should listen to that. The usage panel is, so I wish we met. It would be fascinating to meet. So the usage panel is about 200 people. If you look in the front pages of the American Heritage Dictionary, you can find our names. But what I love is that most people have absolutely no idea who the usage panel is. And they'll look at the usage note and it will say, 80% of the usage panel rejects this construction. And I ask students about that, this, and they'll say, oh, yes, the usage panel, right? And we just accept that 
whoever this is, and we just hope that they know what they're talking about, we should listen to them. And it them. seems like you guys are wearing robes, too. Exactly. Like, you said, we, like the Supreme Court of language or so. That's right. And Antonine Scalia is on the usage panel. Um, but we don't wear robes. I mean, I don't wear a robe. And we don't meet, which I wish we did, because what an interesting, interesting group of people. It's writers and journalists and... Um, Supreme Court justices. Nina Totenberg is also on it. So we have um, some faculty members. What we get is a ballot every year with constructions that the dictionary is tracking to be able to do these usage notes. And so I'll get it once a year. And it's, it's a little tricky for me as a linguist because I'm given these choices about here's a, here's a word, for example, um, well, singular they is on there or with mitigate do you mitigate something or mitigate against something and the choice i'm given is acceptable or not acceptable and so i'm trying to and that's again i go to there are these big online databases now where you can track both spoken and written usage so i will take i take the ballot i take these constructions i go to these databases and i look at What's happening here? What's happening in the spoken language? What's happening in magazines, newspapers, academic prose? To get a sense of what actual practice is. Because it's interesting to me to see if this is starting to move into edited prose. What What is the usage? That's important for the usage panel to know. So with your answers, though, do you, do you sort of put an asterisk? And um, have sort of these longer responses, or or do you just how do you fill in the box? Or what I, I do you have? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I fill in the box. I some there's a space for comments, and I'll sometimes put comments in. For the most part, I try. I think I feel like my role as a linguist on the panel is to be one of the people who is more accepting and welcoming of change. Because I recognize that it's part of the language. The history. It is. And I know that if you look back at the 18th and 19th century, you see all these people complaining about the things they don't like, of saying reliable is a terrible (laughs) word, which we now look Franklin with with colonize, which he thought was a terrible word. And right now it's incentivized that people don't like. (laughs) Or in the 19th century, the pronunciation balcony with the stress on the first syllable. And there's a great quote of someone who says, the pronunciation balcony makes me sick. <laughs> and I think we look at that now and say, well, how else would you pronounce that word? But when it was borrowed in from Italian, it was balcony. So when the stress moved forward to the first syllable, that was enough to upset people. I keep that in mind when I'm on the usage panel and I these constructions that people say, that's wrong, that's terrible. And I keep in mind that Again, in 50 years, 100 years, those complaints are going to look quaint and people aren't going to understand why that word isn't completely standard. And do you feel like you'll be on this usage panel for a while? Like, is it like the Supreme Court where <laughs> once you are you are appointed, <laughs> you are a guardian and, th- and, and a generous one, thank goodness? Well, the, it didn't come with a term limit. So unless I you know, screw up and they kick me off. I, I think I'm on there. I'm on there for a while. And I've been pleased they have been because people see the usage panel as a kind of guardian or that kind of thing. 
I appreciate that they've put a good number of linguists on it so that we can try to bring this perspective about how language works and and how it changes and variation to thinking about these questions of what's quote unquote acceptable and unacceptable, but also trying to take seriously the attitudes out there about what standard, not standard, what people expect in academic writing and don't expect in academic writing, because I take that seriously too. And And you have to, in some way represent all of it. I do. And and what I've chosen to do is to be very open and honest with students about the situation, right? Which is language changes and there's variation. And then there is a much more stable standard that you are expected to acquire to participate in certain kinds of discourse in certain communities. And in, by, by being more open about that, I'm trying to take some of the pressure off. And I don't use words like, this is the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. Because it's the right way to do it in some contexts, and it's not the right way to do it in other contexts. So I stay away from those loaded terms like right, wrong, correct, incorrect. We talk about standard and non-standard, what you want to do in academic contexts, what you might want to do in other contexts. People worry that if you say that, students will not care. They'll say, I don't need to learn this. I have to say that's not my experience at all. It just takes some of the pressure off of saying that somehow if you are a speaker who in the, in the home doesn't speak standard English, speaks a non-standard variety, that that's the language of your home and that there's nothing wrong with it and that it's rule governed. Um, and that you will, in fact, have a bigger repertoire by adding standard English. It just gives you more choices as a speaker. That's wonderful. And we all, I think, could acknowledge that there's always like a, a, a language of the home or the family or your community or the groups that you're in. Absolutely. You start thinking about it. Absolutely. And we're all style shifting all the time to navigate our world. And so... The Secret Life of Words is here. English words and their origins. Um, Anne Curzan in the studio will take a short break and we'll be right back with Living Writers. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Anne Curzan is here um, in the studio. Uh, thanks again to Stephanie for engineering and um, playing a little bit of the cure for us. Um, there's no cure for the changing language, thank goodness. <laughs> thank it's goodness. keep changing. <laughs> right. All living languages, unless they die, so... So knock on wood here. That's right. <laughs> little shout out to Latin there. No, no, you're still going Latin. Keep going. Um, and and the, b- 
before the break, you were saying how, for example, in an academic context, maybe some some words would be non-standard or so. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we're also thinking about, um, for example, how language is changing and shifting with texting and, uh, you know, 140 characters or so and That's tweets. Right. And, and there'd be some ways that if, you know, your mom or dad was trying to text in with a group message and you're in... Um, middle school or high school or where they whatever the parent then was in this group message responding to all where it could just be disastrous or highly (laughs) embarrassing or right yes so let's talk a little bit about that (laughs) let's talk about this because in fact high school junior high high school college students often laugh at their parents for the ways that they text and G-chat and other things. Because in fact, a lot of us who are of a certain age don't text using the same conventions that young people have developed. And I'm very consciously using the word conventions there. Because in fact, in the world of texting and online chatting, young people have developed a quite complex set of new conventions. They're not standard conventions, but they are they are conventions for how to use, for example, punctuation marks to indicate particular things. They have a clear sense of how many acronyms are okay and how many are not okay. Young people do not use as many acronyms as people seem to think they do. So my point is texting, G-chatting, this is not chaos at all. And one of the activities I do with students in class is I have every student bring in 10 etiquette rules for texting. And we create a shared list on the board of or on a, in a document of all these rules. And they're struck by how many they share. Somebody will say something be like, oh, yeah, 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 that's how you do that. And there was this wonderful moment at one point, this was a couple years ago, where they were talking about how you back channel on texting and back channeling. These are the little noises or head nods we make in conversation when we're talking with someone to show that we're listening. So we go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. And if you don't do that on the phone, someone thinks you're not there anymore. Yes. (laughs) And so texting has developed a a way of doing that too, to show I'm here, I'm getting your texts. And one of the ways you do that is, "Uh uh-huh. So I'm at the computer typing onto the into this document that they can see on the screen. And, you know, I'm trying to type fast. They're saying, they're like, uh-huh. And I type in H. And there is this gasp in the room. And they say, no, because it's, ta- it's spelled U-H-H-U-H, right? Uh-huh. And I just stopped the class right there. And I said, okay, did everybody see what just happened there? Any notion that this is chaos, nobody cares about spelling, I said, did you all see how much you cared about whether I spelled that right or not? And they, and they got it that, in fact, and the fact that texting has developed a convention for fixing typos, that here we're going to have to say that word again, <laughs> that you have to, that to correct a typo, you put an asterisk and you retype the word correctly. This shows that people care about what their texts look like. Yes. it's it, So there isn't a need to worry that somehow um, students are going to be turning in, for example, essays, even personal narratives, unless maybe it's quoting direct di- dialogue or so. And then or if it... I think that's right. There's there's again a kind of mythology that students are turning in papers entirely in texting language. The, certainly college students have a very strong sense of where texting language is appropriate and where it's not. 
it is certainly possible that in younger grades, you're going to see some spillover from texting into school language. But this is because one of the things you're learning as a young student is what language is appropriate as school language and what language is not. And so when you see the texting language, that's actually part of that schooling moment is figuring out where those lines are between different registers as you move among them. So it surprises me less with young people. And I think that's just part of their education. Right. And and that's a way, I think, also to bridge to this idea of showing rules or conventions that to bridge to the ones that are the academic conventions or, or, or rules. That's right. And as I point out to students, they have spent a lot of time mastering the conventions of texting. It's just they think of those conventions as more fun than the conventions of academic writing, but they're just different sets of conventions in order to participate in a community and participate effectively. And those of us who are older are not participating effectively in texting because exactly. we don't know the conventions. Effectively. That's key. Um, and in the, I should say, you also have this, if people are interested, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Anne has a, a, an article out texting rules. And I thought it was so wonderful in this that you said that this is actually a way to study um, something happening in the language, like real conversation um, in written form, like how it's and because of its real time, because yeah. of the immediacy of it and how, you know, even with it's not this is something that could change the language in interesting yeah. ways and how our brain is perceiving language. And it's a complicated medium because it's written, but it moves very fast. <laughs> and so so the um, we've. Um, I'm going to keep talking here and have some water. Do you, do you want this? Okay. Um, so what we'll do is we'll go to a short break um, and then we're going to come back and, um, and try and squeeze in a couple more minutes. You've got Living Writers. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Yes. 
Welcome back. There are more words on Living Writers because we've got a couple more moments here. But it was a nice break for Berlin. Um, we wanted to get that song in, Anne, and didn't I'm glad we? we did. So, <laughs> and so today we've been talking about the secret life of words, English words and their origins. Um, Anne Curzan's uh, lecture series that's part of the great courses. Um, and I love that there's a torch on the book, too, because you are sort of you've got this mission uh, to talk about um, <coughs> language and to make sure that people know that it is it's a changing. It's a living. It is thing. Um, and maybe to end with with is this fear, fear <coughs> of missing out FOMO just to go yes. out on that so that um, that that's one of those great sort of new new it's words a, that are is. out there. It's with, a word that students <laughs> taught me. <laughs> So FOMO, fear of missing out. And and my message to people is don't miss out on all the wonderful things that are happening in the language all around you. Thank you so much for being on the program today. And oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank oh, you for having me. I'll come back anytime. I would love to. <laughs> so today you've been listening to Anne Curzan, um, her lecture series with the great courses, The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. Um, thanks again to Stephanie for engineering. Thanks to all you out there for listening. Many thanks to Anne Curzan. Until next time. It's the Down Home Show, every Saturday from noon to 3, right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, April 3rd, 2013. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, newly released documents show the coordinated efforts of local and federal law enforcement agents to spy on and evict Occupy protesters. Palestinian prisoners go on hunger strike and clashes continue in the West Bank after questions are raised about the death of an ailing Palestinian prisoner in Israeli custody. And we'll go to northern Iraq, where mobile clinics are bringing much-needed medical services to local residents in disputed territories. Those stories and more coming up. I'm Nell Abram with FSRN Headlines. More than 50 people died in western Afghanistan today when militants attacked a government compound where Taliban leaders were facing a trial. Nine suicide attackers detonated and killed at least 35 civilians and nine Afghan troops. Another 90 people were hurt, most of them civilians. The Taliban has claimed responsibility and says the accused fighters were freed in the attack. In Tunisia, dozens of refugees who fled the Libyan war are on hunger strike, protesting in front of the U.N. offices in the capital. Several are already facing serious health effects. Roberto Nieto reports from Tunisia. The 41 hunger strikers are residents of the U.N. High Commission for Refugees-run Shusha camp, located on the Tunisian border with Libya. Several of them have now been hospitalized. They're protesting the UN refusal to resettle them to a safe third country where their human rights will be protected. They also want to draw attention to the poor living conditions in the camp that opened in 2011 as a result of the war in Libya. Rula Magakela is one of the protesters. The conditions are not suitable. We are in the desert. The Chusha camp is controlled by Tunisia and the United Nations. What the United Nations tell the Tunisian authorities to do is what they are doing. Shusha once housed thousands of refugees. 